Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to Duel of the Greats Season 1, Episode 3, Best of the Best Week. Okay, we're talking best pictures, surprisingly, from these two fantastic, great directors. The only only one each have had a a picture of a film that they've directed win Best Picture, surprisingly enough. And we're going to talk about both of those pictures this week. So before we get into that, I, of course, am Jeff Herr with me, as always, our local historian, Steve Shepard, and the beardless one, Nate Carter. Nate, hi, Steve, how are you guys doing this, this evening? It, it, you, we don't know at some point we're going to maybe have a streaming video version of these up, but if not, if it's not up yet or you haven't seen it, Nate's the only one that doesn't have a beard. So, it's important. Or at least some think. sort of facial hair. I'm even, glad. Even our, even week our three, I'm, gl- I'm glad we yeah, I'm glad we talked about that. That's good. It took it's very, it's to very that. <laughs> it's kind of a requirement if you're going to be on a podcast and you're. Yeah. I know you got to have you're you got to have. Yeah, we're uh, we're almost depending on which way you go around the circle or how your things are. Like, at least on my screen, it's lined up with most facial hair to least. I got me, <laughs> and then Steve is right next to me, Brandon down, and then then on to Nate. But anyway, so. We just talked about it, and it's, or we just mentioned it. Best of the best week. Pictures, or movies that have won best picture for both these directors. First, um, Steven Spielberg, best picture. The only movie that he's ever had that's won best picture. Schindler's List came out in 1994, so we'll be talking about that. And then for Ridley Scott, the only movie he's ever directed that's won best picture. Gladiator came out in the year 2000, so actually not too far apart from each other. Um, and, you know, in the past two weeks here, we've been putting these movies that we've been talking about head-to-head, right? So, you know, Dual Duelists, Jaws vs. Alien, they, they were very similar movies that were very easy to compare and contrast, right? Um, specifically, even last week, right? We talked about Alien being Jaws in space, etc. So, um, you know, you may be wondering, how exactly does one compare Schindler's List with Gladiator? Which is a very good question. Which is why the tact this week is is not necessarily comparing and contrasting the movies themselves, but what we really wanted to dive into here and look at is, okay, best of the best week, is this truly the best of the best, right? Like, if, if both of these two directors are best directors and they're, are these two films the best of their of their collective categories? You know, I mean, it's... For Steven Spielberg, he did win Best Director the year Schindler's List won Best Picture, but Ridley Scott has never won Best Director, and he didn't even he didn't win it for Gladiator. So, you know, the the question that we want to dive into this week is Steven Spielberg and Schindler's List 
and Ridley Scott and Gladiator, you know, which one truly encompasses the best of what that director brings to the table as a director? And so even though we're not comparing the movies to each other wholesale, I, I do think it's going to be kind of, a, it's, there's a fun comparison to, to be made there. Obviously, the, the subject matter, especially with Schindler's List, is not fun. But, you know, talking about how these movies are directed by them, what they bring to the table, and, and, and whether or not this is truly kind of their best showcase is, is an interesting, uh, interesting way to go about it. So um, before we really dive into all that, though, I mean, especially with, with these two movies, and more specifically even with Schindler's List, just due to the historical significance of, of the topic that it covered, the Holocaust, um, you know, in, in World War II and everything, and just the, such the, the cultural impact that it had, not in the way that, that uh, you know, Star Wars or Harry Potter has had a cultural impact, but, you know, it was one of those things where it was a movie, uh, you know, oh, you have to see this movie. You know, it was a Seinfeld episode. Jerry, you have to see Schindler's List. Why haven't you seen Schindler's List, Jerry? <laughs> so, you know, it's it, it, was a, it was a really big deal in that regard. It felt important to see, something that you needed to see as a human being, to see, you know, because it was such a, a, a well-done depiction. Um, and thinking back to that, you know, where was I when this happened? I remember, so I, I was nine years old when it came out. So this, we, you know, we learned about World War II. We learned, we learned about the horrors of the Holocaust, but, but in terms of like truly seeing this kind of thing happening, um, on screen, you know, it was something that as a nine year old, you weren't really shown. So I didn't actually like see it when it came out, you know, it wasn't something that, even even though it was you know that important, I mean it was rated R. It was very it's it's very violent. It's very brutal, and um, so it, it wasn't something I saw right away. But I knew about it. I knew it existed. I knew its importance. Um, and I actually had um, sorry my uh, my daughter came in to give me a cup of tea because she's super sweet. Um, but the uh, so I saw it. I cannot remember the exact year I saw it. I want to say around like 97-ish, maybe. Um, it was actually, I remember it was a, um, it was on network television. And it was like a special, like brought to you by Ford, which is super ironic, but we're not going to get into that. But um, it, where they, they, they played it with like one intermission, you know, limited commercial interruption type of thing because it was one of those movies that like, you know, some movies you can get Jurassic Park, you can get away with putting um, some some commercials in there, but like Schindler's List, you know, you you have to be in that really kind of sucked in. You just having commercials in that it really just doesn't doesn't work. So they did the smart thing; they found a sponsor, they got it to be on. So that was my first like experience with <clears throat> Schindler's List, and at the time, it was one of those things where like I was still young enough that I knew what was going on, on on screen was horrific. And, and I, I knew that because I was supposed to know it, you know, that's very obvious, but I don't know that I under, I truly fully understood that. I don't know how you can as a, you know, 11, 12 year old, really that, that to fully encompass exactly all this, this pain and suffering. And then just even just beyond that, the, the humanity that's involved with it and, and what all that means and, and how to interpret that at such a young age. So, you know, that's kind of my first experience with it and where I knew, like, okay, you know, this is this is serious. This is this stuff that happened was very bad. But, it, you know, it wasn't until seeing it as an adult and then, you know, even more so rewatching it. It's one of those movies every time it feels like it, the, the further along you go in life, every time you see it again, 
you know, it's not necessarily a movie that you want to watch all, you know, over and over again, but um, it, it has a different impact on you because you've lived more life. You've had more humanity. You've known more people. You've known these sorts of things. And especially in our current time, you know, where there's, there's just a lot, a lot of uncertainty in the world that fears feels more similar to that world than I would have imagined, you know, as a 12 year old, 25 years later, <laughs> I, I would definitely was not imagining that like, okay, it would feel this close to that world of world war two. Um, so, so it's, it's just kind of interesting how, how so this kind of evolves there, but, but that was my sort of first interaction with Schindler's List first experience. You know, what about, what about you guys with, with that? What was your kind of first recollection of first time seeing that first time hearing and understanding it and, and all that? I saw it for the first time when I was in high school. And I remember we were talking about the Holocaust. And I want to say it was a situation where we were going to watch it in class. And I would have been like junior or senior in high school. So I was, I was a little bit older. And I think it was a situation where obviously we had to get like parent permission to watch the movie. And I think my mom chose to watch it with me beforehand. She was going to give me permission. She just wanted to watch it with me beforehand just to make sure kind of aware of everything that was going to go on um i guess maybe i saw it like twice and i saw it twice when i was in high school um i have a recollection sorry to interrupt but that's actually really cool that your mom did that yeah um, i'm assuming so she could like answer the questions that you had or something yeah i think it was just kind of one of those things uh, actually it was funny because when i was um you know we rewatched it this week uh my wife and i I asked my mom, I said, because I obviously, I was like you, everyone here, I was pretty young when it originally was released, so I never saw it in theaters. I asked my mom if she had seen it in theaters, and she actually said no, that she didn't see it in theaters, um, and that her first time seeing it all the way through was probably with me when we watched it together. Um, Not that my mom was trying to avoid it, but she just had, like, two little kids at home and didn't have the opportunity to go see Schindler's List, which anyone who has two little kids at home knows that it's, you know, you have to pay for a babysitter and go out to a movie, and it's kind of, you know, just critically acclaimed movies that you miss. And I watched it in high school. I have a vague recollection of rewatching it at some point in my 20s, um, but really this time, um, seeing it again, I will say... And certainly, this is not so much the case if – I'm not saying that you have to have children of your own for it to pack more of a punch. Um, but having a child of my own, this was probably the hardest watch for me. I think that there's some particular moments, which we'll talk about a little bit later, that carry a little bit more of an emotional weight for me, having children. And not even necessarily just having children of my own, but just – grow older and you have children in your life and you see younger generations and you see naivety and the ignorance of children and the innocence of children and you're more aware of that the older that you get um there were definitely some moments that were much more difficult for me to watch so i would say watch it maybe those couple times in high school i think maybe once in my 20s just to like rewatch it and then this maybe was like my third or fourth go around with it Yeah, I don't have uh, much different of a story. Um, I'm the same age as you guys, essentially. Um, I was, I guess, probably eight or so when it came out, so I didn't see it until, I think, high school myself. I don't remember doing it as part of school. Um, You know, as we've talked about, I'm a pretty big 
history buff and I, I think I came to it that way. Um, in fact, I, I distinctly remember kind of avoiding it because I was always really into the war parts of history, you know, the actual fighting and combat and, you know, the Holocaust as a teenager, I was like, you know, obviously it's a horrible thing that happened, but I, I'm interested in the, the fighting. Um, I, I did watch it and it had a, you know, pretty profound effect, but I'm with you guys. The passage of time and the, the, you know, just different life experiences you've had since then. Uh, and you know, the current political climate, it, it definitely hit way, way different this time. Uh, this is only the second time I've seen it. I watched it the first time, first time ever. And then again, this weekend. So, uh, it was quite, quite an experience. But yeah, um, it's definitely, it's the closest thing that I think I've seen come to that since then has been um, 12 Years a Slave, where that was the only kind of movie that I've really felt has had that sort of a cultural impact where it's, again, it's not like Star Wars, Harry Potter, it's not, you know, buy an action figure or anything, but it's like, you gotta see this movie because it's important. And and I, similar to what you were saying, Steve, I've like with 12 Years a Slave, like I've avoided that movie somewhat, you know, like I haven't seen it. And it's just like, it's, you know, you definitely have to be in the right mental space to, to watch these movies sometimes. And it can be very difficult. And yeah, depending on where you, like not only just like the older you get, but just where you are in your specific life, it can really um, have an impact, you know? So if, if you've you know lost a loved one or something, then, then, then seeing all these loved ones of all these people get lost in a movie like Schindler's List, I mean, that, you know, it, it can't be easy. So, you know, it's, it's, there are movies that are, um, you know, they're, they're, I have, I've had, there's, there's a small subset of movies that I've seen that I would, that I would typically, you know, describe to somebody else as like difficult to watch. Right. And, and many for different reasons. Right. So not comparing at all to Schindler's List, but a movie like Requiem for a Dream, a movie like Clockwork Orange, you know. Very difficult. Requiem for a Dream is like when you say that difficult to watch. It's the very first one that I think of. Yeah. Requiem for a every dream. every time I'm every time anybody brings that up, I'm always say I'm I'm glad that I've seen it. Never again. I will never watch that movie ever again. So you know, there's there's it's difficult. Now Schindler's List is is not quite at that level that it's that it's that hard to watch. Cause, but again, for different reasons. So it's but it, but it's still a difficult watch it's not something you just have on in the background as you're you know folding laundry or something <laughs> um in the um uh spirit of, of equity here you know what about gladiator did you guys see gladiator in the theater was that what was your first experience with that one because i i saw gladiator in the theater and um i mean that was gladiator was huge gladiator was like not quite like action figure level, but it was almost like a, a Star Wars type cultural sensation. Like it was a big thing. Like they had the trailer with the Kid Rock song, and it was a huge deal. It was a whole thing. I uh, I saw Gladiator in the theater as well, and I remember um, it was very violent. There's there's like action sequences that are very violent. And in 2000, I probably would have been around like 13 or 14 years old, and I remember it was so cool that I got to see it in theaters. Um, mm -hmm. uh, strangely enough, I actually saw that one with my mom as well. <laughs> I saw that one with my mom and um, an old family friend of hers that uh, uh, had a big crush on Russell Crowe and like still to this day loves Russell Crowe, so we ended up seeing that movie, and 
I was allowed to go and it was kind of it wasn't my first R-rated movie, but it was one of my first big ones that I really got to see and understand. Like, ooh, I'm like, this is a very adult movie. There's a lot of very there's a lot of gore and a lot of violence in this. I'm like, it's something special for me to uh, get to see. And then, like you said, I mean, Gladiator is probably one that I've like. I I can't remember the last time that I've or how many times I've sat and started it and watched it all the way to the end. Um, certainly this time this past week is, you know, the first time in several years, but it's definitely one of those movies that it's, it's more on TV and, and you're more willing to maybe have that on in the background while you're folding laundry, uh, than something like Schindler's List. So I feel like I've seen parts of it more throughout the years. Again, maybe not from beginning to end, but it's certainly something that has been in my consciousness and been on my television more over, uh, the past 20 years or so. Yeah, same. I was obsessed with this movie. I saw it in the theaters when it came out. Um, you know, like you were saying, hit at a perfect time for preteen boy. You know, it's got the blood and the violence. And, um, you know, I wanted to be Maximus. Uh, that I've probably seen it at least 20 times, I'd imagine. I mean, probably more than that. But um, when I was, let's see. Um, a few years before it came out, I had, uh, I had brain surgery actually, uh, hard pivot. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, every year after that for, I think about five or maybe six or seven years, I had to go in for an MRI to make sure everything was okay. And this MRI, if you've ever had one, you have to stay like perfectly still, whatever body part is being imaged and it was my, my head. So it was awful. Um, but one thing they let you do is they let you bring in any CD you wanted so you could, um, you know, try to take your mind off of it. And they'd pipe it in. <laughs> For like three years in a row, I listened to the friggin' Gladiator score. And like, no words or anything. I mean, I guess the singing. The, the, it's a good score. It, it, I mean, I, I got a theory later on about why this movie was so successful. But yeah, the score is fantastic. Steve, uh, didn't Zimmer, you also, yeah. didn't we back in our making movies with a camcorder day, didn't we briefly develop something that was called like the power of Rome? <laughs> which was a clear, a clear and unapologetic knockoff of, of Gladiator. <laughs> oh, almost certainly. I, I definitely remember having my mom take me down to the, uh, I think it's the Casey Costume Company when it was downtown. Yes, and it had like, like a Gladiator. Big, yes. Yeah, we had like a Gladiator armor. <laughs> so that was probably That's why fantastic. I we, had we it. need to dig that up. Can we find <laughs> that? Oh, man. I have no idea where that we'll, one We'll look for that one. I'm not sure where that one is. Um, oh, yeah. It was... It was a big part of my life in 2000. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a good kind of a good segue of, of this, Steve, as our resident historian. Um, let's start with Schindler's List. Why don't you give us some background on Schindler's List and, you know, just the, the production, how it came to be, all that, uh, all that good stuff that you're so good at. So as uh, anyone who's probably gotten this far in the podcast knows, Schindler's List is based on a true story. Uh, there was a novel actually based on the events called Schindler's Ark, um, written in post-war, and uh, it was kind of a decent hit. And Universal bought the rights to it in the '80s, and they wanted Steven Spielberg to direct it back then, but he he did not feel like he was up to it, um, both personally or professionally. Um, as everyone, most people know, Steven Spielberg is Jewish, and um, he has over the years had an interesting relationship with it, that part of his heritage. 
Um, and I think at the time when they proposed it, he hadn't quite fully embraced it. Um, in some of these interviews, he's talked about how he was ashamed of being Jewish when he was younger. I think, I guess because, you know, the, it made him different. Um, obviously by the time he made this, it, you know, not only, uh, by that time he grew in as a person, but the act of making this movie changed his relationship with his own heritage. So, uh, by the time he finally feels ready to do it in the nineties, um, they, they say, all right, knock it, you know, take it away. And they filmed on location in Poland and Krakow. Um, and it was a massive, massive operation. Um, they shot it fairly quickly, 72 days for such a big movie. There are over 30,000 extras, which just is mind boggling. Um, and one of the most interesting things about it, and I, you know, Nate, I'm sure can tell us more about this as we get into the details of the movie, but one thing uh, that I noticed is while I was watching it that kind of got backed up in the research is he doesn't use a lot of his usual camera tricks. And I figured out why as I was reading, he said he, quote, limited the utensils so the story would be the strength of the piece. He specifically didn't use cranes, steady cams. Um, he extremely limited the different uh, types of zoom lenses. Um, and he really, really wanted to just kind of take a step back and be, in his own words, uh, shoot it more of a documentary. So we're kind of seeing, you know, some, some synergy there with uh, our other director. Um, but it, you know, it leads to a very interesting style for him. And uh, I, I think for the better uh, in this case. But, you know, the black and white was a choice that he wanted, again, to he wanted the story to, to really carry it. And, the, you know, the subject matter, not necessarily the look of everything. So, um, another interesting point about it, he, you know, obviously like we've talked about heavy, heavy subject matter. Um, and it, it was terrible on his mental health. His, his wife, Kate Capshaw and their kids, um, actually flew to Poland and live with him for the time that it took to, to shoot it, um, to kind of basically keep him sane. And then he was also a couple hours every night was editing Jurassic park, which was due, uh, to be to premiere later in the year. So that had to be quite the juxtaposition. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's see. There were, you know, there's all kinds of crazy tidbits about this thing. Um, oh, yeah, this was interesting. So there were a couple other people uh, considered for Schindler, aside from Lee Neeson. Uh, Warren Beatty, which would have been weird. Kevin Costner. Yeah, yeah. Mel Gibson. Now that one, I think we dodged a bullet. That would have aged terribly, as yes. the kids say. Holy, yeah, that would have been a disaster. Is that our Zoomer our Zoomer phrase for the week, age terribly? Because that would fit right there. <laughs> I don't know. Do we, we need a ruling? I don't think they say oh, age that's, terribly. That's a thumbs up from, from, a right. from our producer. I don't know. I'm gonna, they I might say have that. Thumb, it's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, well, it was a big hit. Um, you know, if it's referenced in Seinfeld, it's got to be big. Uh, grossed almost $100 million in the U.S. Pardon me, uh, $320 plus million worldwide. Critics loved it. Um, the only real criticisms, ironically enough, came from academia a lot, and uh, they seem far be it from me to criticize what someone feels. But when I was looking at some of the, the articles and stuff, it was some people saying that like some of it was anti-Semitic, and I thought that was interesting an interesting take. Um, but look, for example, it's bold. It's a yeah. bold. Take. <laughs> one of the complaints was that he, the way he, he used Liam Neeson and, um, 
Rafines, uh, you know, they, they're big men and they, they tower above all the, the, not all, but many of the Jewish characters. And they thought that that was, you know, leaning into a stereotype, um, uh, you know, historically, I don't want to say anything bad because obviously I'm, you know, we feel everyone should be treated with respect. So I'm trying to like give you what the article said without saying the horrible things. Um, but you know, there are, there were stereotypes of the caricature of a, you know, a, a short, yeah, I mean, like, you see the drawings from that, yes. from that time, the, the propaganda posters, they yes. depict these, these, you know, smaller, the like hunched over in Harry yes. Potter are attacked for being anti also aged terribly they really are. So picture that there's, I took a course called the Holocaust in college and, you know, we spent weeks just looking at Nazi friggin' propaganda and it, it's a parody of itself, really. I mean, except people believe this and literally, you know, led to the mass slaughter of people based on these stupid cartoons. Anyway, um, so overall critical reception was great. This thing cleaned up at the awards, uh, Oscars and BAFTAs. It won picture, director, screenplay, score, editing, cinematography, uh, or the equivalents. You know, BAFTA's not the direct one-to-one comparison. And... It has aged well, not aged poorly. Uh, AFI Top 100 made it its number nine movie of all time, and that was in 98, so just five years after it came out. And um, when they, you know, they redid it 10 years later in 2007, and it moved up a spot to number eight. I couldn't find if they did it again, just, you know, in 2017 or 18, but... I've looked. They haven't done it again. I don't know why they stopped doing that. Yeah. That was, like, my life. I was so pumped for that in 98 when they first did that, and it was such a cool show. And I wish they would have done it again. Yeah. But yeah. So needless to say, this thing is, uh, you know, it, it, whether we agree <laughs> that it's one of Spielberg's best works or his best work, uh, the rest of the movie going public in the world thinks it is. So did you want me to dive into Gladiator first? Or do we want to talk more about? What do you think? Do we want to, do we want to talk Schindler's List first after that? Or do we want to dive into Gladiator history first? Either just, or works for we me. We just talk. Let's just let's just dive right into Schindler's List. So yeah, there's, there's um, plenty to talk about for sure. First kind of thoughts. Um, so just for me to get the ball rolling, um, obviously very heavy subject matter. And um, the movie was incredibly brutal. And it was in, in the physical and the visceral sense and then also in the emotional sense. You know, there is everything you can imagine. You know, there is the... From the just sheer brutality of Amon Girth up on his balcony pulling a sniper rifle and just picking off random Jewish people working the yard for whatever reason he felt was important at the time. You know, um, side note, Ray finds unbelievably good in this role in just how just despicably evil this person is just pure pure horrible evil and it's just like like this character is more evil than Voldemort and it's like oh yeah you know he he captures go ahead no no go ahead to me what I really thought was amazing about his performance is you know, there's a saying about Nazi Germany and the Holocaust about the banality of evil, right? It, it's not so much that it's not the Genghis Khan riding in and chopping off hundreds of thousands of people's heads in, you know, 10 years. It's this this workaday like 
fashion in which they set about to do this, just, you know, with stat spreadsheets, uh, you know, the, just the sheer dehumanization of people and just turning it into, you know, numbers on a board. And I think just, he kind of captures casual. That. Yes. Yeah. He, yeah, it's he sh- he shoots these people from his perch, and then he goes and he brushes yeah. his teeth and puts on his pants. Yeah, you know, this just casual murder. It's and he did an amazing job. He should have won yeah. best supporting actor, I thought. But and I'll actually argue with you on that to the specific point of also this movie because I think Ben Kingsley is the oh, absolute yeah. heart of this movie, and he's yeah. I forget how phenomenal he is just mm-hmm. as an actor in general until you really see him act. Like, you see him do, like, silly things, like when he's, uh, you know, the fake Mandarin in Iron Man <laughs> or, or whatever, and you're just like, oh, Ben Kingsley's kind of cool. But then you see, like, um, I've actually never seen Gandhi, which he's one for, because it's, like, eight hours long, but, um, like, House of Sand and Fog and Schindler's List and just, like, some of his movies where he truly acts, it's like, this guy is a freaking legend. But anyway... Um, so one thing that's I, I thought kind of was interesting. You talk about this, you know, just the brutality of it, and I, I think to Spielberg's credit, you know, he has like he's never been quite a stranger to violence, but he's not he's not by any means Tarantino, right? And there is you know there's a specific kind of line that he doesn't seem to cross, and I can see why this movie would be very hard for him because he had to cross it, something that you you rarely see in his other films. You know, you can. <clears throat> It's a little bit different, but you see it a little bit in Saving Private Ryan. There was a little bit um, of a similar aspect of it in Amistad, you know, but it's, it's pretty rare that he that he goes to this this point. But the way he does it, I think, was was very well done in that it it gets the point across and it doesn't stick around too long. Because if I have a, if I do have a problem with Tarantino, and especially when he handles heavy subject matter like in a Django Unchained or in Inglorious Bastards or something, he holds on to it too long, right? Like, especially in Django Unchained. It almost feels voyeuristic. And, like, there's this sort of weird, almost pleasure in the violence in it. And 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 that kind of rubs me the wrong way, and I think it takes away from some of the, some of the points trying to be made. Spielberg never gets to that point. All of his violence in this movie no matter how brutal it is, it's, it's, it's chosen for a specific purpose to show a specific thing. And he shows it makes the point and then moves on. He doesn't let it linger to the point where you get that sort of weird voyeuristic feeling. It, it, it hits you and you feel it, but it's, it's not, it's not to the point where it's, where it's just so much that it's like, this doesn't even matter anymore because it's just so much blood and violence, you know, like the, that's yeah. the ending of Django Unchained. He's just blowing everybody away, and it's just like, okay, none of this matters anymore. It's all fun. It's all blood on the walls and stuff like that. You know, it desensitizes. Exactly, yeah. and it never gets to that point. And I think that was very effective, and that may be the best in terms of, of of really sending home the message. That may be one of the best things that he does in this movie. There's something that they're doing with the cinematography that's really powerful that I've read about in the years since and then really sat to observe and watch is how the movie begins. They, they wanted Part of the reason they wanted to shoot in black and white was so that it appeared timeless. Like this movie could have come out in any year. You, you wouldn't be able to tell when the movie came out. And in the opening scenes, before you really get to the horrors of what the Holocaust is, it's shot very beautifully. Like it, like it looks like this old 1940s Hollywood movie. 
I think of the scene at the beginning where, um, you know, Schindler is kind of sitting in the club and the camera's moving around him and is kind of following his gaze. It's really, really beautifully lit. And then they switch. They, uh, when they're clearing out the ghetto is primarily the scene where they do it. Where he switches to, as Steve talked about, that documentary style where it just becomes really obje- jarring in a way that it's objective and it kind of changes. There's nothing about the black and white that changes. The way they light the scene and the way they almost switch to kind of this natural light and it's outdoors and it's like you've sort of been watching this really beautiful, timeless thing and the way they almost trick you and they move you very suddenly and very jarringly into these horrific things and you just can't – it's it's a very – way that the cinematography in this thing is like genius like it's some of the greatest cinematography ever and i think it's because of that switch i think it's because you're watching this movie and you're kind of overcome by this very sort of black and white ageless timeless beauty and then when it gets to these horrific scenes you're almost ashamed of yourself at the 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 supposed beauty that you've been watching and how you've kind of been pulled in by the filmmaker and now you have to sit with what you've watched and it's um, it's very unsettling. It's unsettling as a viewer. That's actually really interesting because that was like my first note of was you know why black and white. So that's good that you answered that question. And I was I actually wrote down questions. I was like, do they want to make it seem like a dream? Do they want to make it seem like a memory, like a different time, <clears throat> like a world that's lost its color? You know, all those things essentially from what you said is, is kind of what their goal was. But uh, it's funny that you mentioned that club scene because that's what I was thinking too. Where you know, I actually mentioned it with uh, Duel, how there was that fantastic tracking shot in the in the, uh, the the diner. There was a very similar type track, not as long, but a tracking shot with Schindler as he rolled into the club. And yeah, it's like very great Gatsby, you know, lots of flapper girls going around and, and, and you know, everyone's drinking like crazy. And, and yeah, and then it just kind of stops. And it's a lot of, a lot of just head-on shots, a lot of very still just like, hanging in the frame type of shots. And then my next note from there is that, you know, once it starts to change is um, this film is so different for him because it's confrontational. You know, we talked last week about one of the difference between the two Spielberg and Scott is how Spielberg kind of pulls you in, makes you feel like a part of the world, not necessarily that you're watching it, but like that you're in it. But this one was, was almost felt a little different to me and that it was kind of similar to what you said, like a documentary style and that it was, it was, it's confrontational. It's confronting you. He's, you know, putting this in there unflinchingly saying, you know, look at this, this, you know, this is real, this happened. And it's, you know, it makes sense all the stuff, Steve, that you said about how he, you know, needed his family there to ground him. Cause like, that's tough. That's really hard to do. And, um, you know, again, part of the genius of him is that is he was able to pull it off, but it's, um, it's so different, especially up to this point from just about anything he'd done and, and since really. Yeah. I think it also, something really powerful that it does as well as, you know, again, back to that initial club scene with a beautiful tracking shot, this shot where it is on Schindler's face and the camera kind of tracks over. You're really paying attention to his gaze and about what he's seen. And you're very aware of the things that he's seen and how he's scanning the room. And when we kind of come back to that shot later, it's not as pretty of a tracking shot, but he's sitting on horseback and he's overlooking the ghetto getting cleared out. 
and how, again, you as an audience or gaze is evolving along with Schindler of like, what are you seeing? And there's these moments, and that's kind of a moment very much where it clicks over for that character of like, what am I seeing? What am I being, what am I witness to? And at the beginning, it's kind of all fun and games, and he's a war profiteer, and he's just trying to make money. And then that same gaze is seeing these things that are really awful that he discovers that he can't ignore. And even even the woman that he's in that scene with is just like, come on, yeah. let's go. Let's leave. And She's almost an he, audience surrogate there. It's like, exactly, exactly. And he, he can't, and he's yeah. he still has to look, especially this, you know, that very famous, you know, little girl in the red red coat and it's following her around and you know i i don't know if this is exactly one of the scenes you were talking about nate when you talk about how it hits kind of different when having a child but you know i have a daughter about that same age and probably a few years older than that girl was actually but um you know it's just it's yeah it is just like you're just like man like that could be my daughter you know if this if this is something that that happens and and that could be your child or any child that you're close to. And like you said, it doesn't have to be a daughter, but you know, having children in your life as you get older in some way, shape or form, right. You know, you begin to know them and they, they become little, they become little people. And then, but there's that innocence there. There's that just knowledge of, you know, they, they, it, kids get so freaked out when they don't have their parents around. And it's, that's scary because that's just a world they don't know. And trying to imagine a child like that, navigating that world in that scene is what part of, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a powerful thing, and it's just it was it, that was very difficult to watch. It's it's that scene, and then uh, the scene that I was alluding to earlier when they're in the concentration camp, and they're sorting all the women, and they march the children out, and they get them onto the trucks, and the children they've oh, clearly yeah. told the children to like wave at their parents. I guys, I will be honest with you, and like I know that my like this is the express height of privilege. I don't know if I can do that again. I, I that scene. I so that's a great example of a scene that when I was younger, I'd completely forgotten about that moment. I think everyone remembers the little girl in the red coat. That's like a real famous part of the movie. Um, that particular moment was the hardest moment for me to watch. And there's there's real there's really no nothing violent in that particular moment. Um, but it is just uh, that that was really the moment my wife and I watching it where I. I was about all I could take. I was about all I can take, and it's going to be any many years before I'm able to to revisit that particular moment in the movie. And that that was kind of the. I think everyone sort of has those moments with a movie like this that really hit you, and that was the one that just uh, pretty much took me out. So, yeah, and obviously I can't. <laughs> I can't add anything to that. Um, it does. One thing I kept coming back to as I was watching this, you know, we're viewing this as Spielberg's, you know, his peak film, right? At least that's what the Oscars would tell us, however flawed that is as a rational, you know, decision-making method. But is this movie, could it have been about any other historical event, bad, you know, terrible, horrible historical event, and had the same impact? And, you know, I think the answer is no, but that's just kind of my initial gut reaction, right? Because it's this confluence of filmmaker and subject that I think he was able to tap into something and use his unique skills and his his own, you know, um, history with it to to bring something else out. Uh, You know, if this had been about, 
gosh, I don't know, the Hindenburg disaster or something, you know, obviously the Holocaust is kind of hard to compare because it's such a, a unique, horrific thing that has happened, uh, that did happen. I don't know. To me, it's, I think the, it gets a, uh, the Holocaust itself is, it's critical to the power of this film. And I know that seems simple when you step back and look at, well, duh, of course, but any other event and it, it just, it's this combination of things that all together just make it so powerful. You guys have well, any thoughts? That's a really interesting question. And I think we almost kind of pseudo know the answer to that, right? Cause three years later he made Amistad and you know, that's about the slave trade. You know, it's a very, it's a, about this, this horrible, just, genocide that this entire people had and and it's not on the scale of Schindler's List because it's more you know just about uh you know Amistad the 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 person and the the trial that they went through but um you know it, 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 there's a lot of similar tones there and it wasn't nearly as well received it wasn't nearly um as uh you know as it wasn't as successful and it wasn't as as critically acclaimed so um you know it's I think that's a really good question, Steve, and I think that it, you kind of shown that. And even I think part of the issue is that when it comes to you know Holocaust versus you know slavery, Spielberg grew up with Holocaust survivors. He knew them. You know, most people, or definitely now, you know, it's like Twelve Years a Slave. You mentioned that earlier, right? Like Steve McQueen, the director of Twelve Years a Slave, is a black person, but you know, he doesn't. He didn't know any slaves right like the the, right. the way that that spielberg or somebody would would have known somebody sure. from the holocaust and it doesn't make it any any better or worse but there's yeah, just that, that that real that that sort of reality that feeling to, that yeah it's one thing to still live with the vestiges of institutional racism and slavery which mm-hmm. obviously are still around and right absolutely negative force in society but it is probably another thing to have that literally told i mean you know, had that literally told to you from people that were in chains, you know. Telling yeah, and people that had the tattoos and stuff on their mm-hmm. body, you know, the 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 numbers and everything. And um, Brandon, you wanted you had something you wanted to, you wanted to add. Well, you actually kind of said what I was going to say was I think the fact that we're still not even really that far removed from the time that movie was made, from the time the Holocaust happened. I mean, really, in terms of major events in the history of the world, it's not that far removed. There's so much information available and people still alive to live through it. Same with uh, 12 Years a Slave. It's the, the, uh, the proximity to the event, I think, and the amount of, like you talked about, the people are still around, even to this day type thing, and the, the personal direct connection. I, I don't think you could make any movie that isn't about an event that was beyond, like I would say, the last 100 years at this point and still get the same impact. I think it's also worth noting that uh, you know you use the example of Twelve Years a Slave and Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen is British, and obviously, I certainly don't get to dictate when a a black man of of uh, any nationality um, has a personal uh, story to tell. But I think there's a difference between Spielberg, like you said, knowing and growing up around and speaking to people who actually survived the Holocaust, whereas Steve McQueen who did a brilliant job directing 12 Years a Slave, but probably a little bit more personally removed from that. Um, 
it's because you know he's he's not american i would assume he could be a descendant of like a slave trade in great britain but i don't know if he would be if he would be considered a don't think it would be possible for him to be a descendant of the slave trade in the united states of america and so there's a little <laughs> bit of a disconnect there and again he does like this amazing thing with 12 years a slave but there's something about spielberg and actually talking to people in making this movie talking hundreds and hundreds of holocaust survivors literally incorporating their stories and the things that happen these little micro moments and you can read about them like all over the movie of things that like someone specifically told him and then he just like put it in the movie to make it feel that much more real i mean they're they're people they're in the movie themselves you know at the end after the credits or before the credits you know they have the procession of the yeah, actual super spindler I Jew, forgot right? about that. and the and the actor who portrayed them you know that came through so you know i mean it's it's crazy and um, Sorry. Go no, go ahead, Steve. I was going to move to another thing real quick. Okay. Well, I was going to as well. So go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say, for if anybody wants to contact our socials, uh, we definitely 100% are not trying to compare and contrast the various horrific things that have happened to people across you know history. It's all equally terrible. Um, you know, it just happens that we're talking about this in the context of the Holocaust because that's what we watch. Uh, and I just looked it up. Steve McQueen, he is of Grenadian and Trinidadian, Trinidadian uh, ancestry. So almost certainly his ancestors were brought over yeah. in slave trade. So, yeah. Um, um, anyway. So, yeah, one, just one other thing that we hadn't really had, I wanted to kind of hit on really quick before we go into maybe some of the things, if any, that we didn't like. Um, but so there was there was one scene um, where they actually had the Jewish people in the camp that they, they forced them to dig up bodies of previous people that had been killed and then buried in mass graves. And, you know, that was so horrific, obviously, but it just kind of goes like, it just, I, I had down in my notes that this, they're the, the Jewish people, you know, they're, they're forced to relive this time and time again. You know, where it's just like, because, you know, this wasn't the first time that, that the Jews had, had had a, a you know, mass enslavement and, you know, this sort of tragedy on their people. And the, and then, you know, even after the Holocaust, there's never been something like that since. But, you know, there's still, even you look at today and you see you know, the, the anti-Semitism that's still rampant, you know, and we talked about it too, and it's not just, you know, anti-Semitism, racism, all that kind of stuff, all these things that are still rampant that, that have to deal with. And so all these people that have been, that their cultures historically have been traumatized and they have to relive it again and again and again, it's just constant. And it just like, I really thought that particular scene kind of, kind of made that hit home for me. And that, again, that, that can be something that, you know, even though it's in the context of the Holocaust here, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be just, just you know, Jewish people or just the Holocaust because it that that sort of idea of having to relive this generational trauma is yeah. is something that so many different groups of people have had to deal with, and it's just it's just terrible. They there was uh, anti-Semitic graffiti on some of the sets when they were filming the damn movie, so I mean, it's not a shock obviously to anybody listening that it's still <laughs> anti-Semitism still exists, but. It's like, come on, what are we doing? 
um, that scene in particular, to me, there are two scenes, two shots, really, I guess, or sequences of shots in the film that visually stuck with, are sticking with me the most. That shot, that scene, and then in particular, the shot of the conveyor belt with the bodies going up in it. That's like something out of Dante's Inferno, um, you know, with all the emotional weight that you just talked about and then seeing that as well. And then at the end of the movie, <clears throat> excuse me, of the movie, when, um, the women are accidentally sent to Auschwitz and they're the sheer terror, you know, in their eyes when they're being offloaded of the train at night, it's snowing. And then the shot looking up at the chimney, just spewing, you know, smoke of cremated humans just into the dark sky was just, it was, I don't know, something about that, that shot was just horrifying. Um, so before we move on to Gladiator, is there anything that maybe you didn't like, maybe you think you didn't think was as effective, um, in this movie? I would say, I mean, no, <laughs> I mean, it's all pretty effective. I know that Steve mentioned that from, you know, academic sources and more scholarly sources have pointed out a few things. I, I, I don't I don't know this for certain. I would have to do research on this. We've kind of heard that that scene where they the women are actually sent to Auschwitz and they go into gas chambers and they're actually showers. We've kind of heard that that is a sort of fake out that might not have actually occurred um, in real life, and I, I could be wrong about that. And I want to make sure. I know other people in academia have said that that's kind of a naive thing and that maybe he's dipping into a little bit some of his Spielberg isms. Um, the only other real criticism I've ever heard of this movie is that it it's horrible and it's about the Holocaust, but it's ultimately a story about people who don't die in the Holocaust, which is kind of perhaps disingenuous because the Holocaust is about millions upon millions of people who are murdered. Spielberg settles on this one story about people who aren't murdered. It, he's basing it on like if that if if the Schindler's List thing were completely fictional, I would definitely say, yeah, it's disingenuous. He shouldn't have done that. That's a that's a false retelling of the Holocaust that gives people a false sense of hope. It's a true story. So it's kind of hard for me to hear those criticisms. At the same time, I'm very privileged. I am not Jewish. I know a lot of these criticisms have come from like Jewish academia, so I respect those opinions, but those are kind of the criticisms I've heard. As a film, those criticisms don't really land for me personally, but I can kind of see how people get there. I'm not sure what you guys think of that. Yeah, I, again, I'm with you. As I don't want to try to undersell anyone's interpretation of it or any, especially anyone who's personally affected by it because of their heritage. Um, but as a film, I mean, the women, when they're taken back out of Auschwitz, like there's an extended long shot of the people that aren't fortunate, you know, walking down into the actual gas chambers. And, you know, that's just one of many opportunities in the, that Spielberg takes to actually show people that were, you know, killed or maimed or brutally affected, not just psychologically or physically, um, without being permanently injured. So... Yeah, my only, it's not even a complaint. I, I just wonder, the fact that it is, and it's a true story, right? But that it's about a, a righteous Gentile, which is what 
um, I believe the Israelis, uh, and uh, they have a, I think it's like the, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's like a park where they honor uh, non-Jewish people who helped Jewish people in the Holocaust. And they call them righteous Gentiles. The fact that it's about that and not, you know, a, a Jewish main character is that, should we look at that as a criticism, you know? Um, why, why couldn't it have been about a persecuted group that actually fought back? You know, why not about the Warsaw Uprising or any any instance like that? Why does it have to be about the classic, you know, the white guy, the bad guy who's actually doing good? Um, and to me, you know, I, I don't That was what the novel was about. That's what they bought the option, you know, for. It's a powerful story. But I think also, and this may be kind of... Um, uh, cynical, but I think it also helps give the movie a broader appeal because for people that aren't Jewish, um, I think you always wonder, you're like, would I have had the guts if that happened to stand up and say something? Uh, would I have had the guts to put my life on the line to protect these people? And so not only are, you know, does, is the film capturing the horror of the people that actually, you know, suffered, but it, it gives a window into the mindset of, the quote, you know, Gentile at the time as well. What would you have done? It lets you put yourself there more so than if it's the, just pure horror. Uh, when I've been to uh, the Holocaust Memorial in Washington, D.C., there's these two big long strips of walls that are dedicated to uh, non-Jewish peoples yes. who helped people. And I completely agree, Steve, that like that to me is personally impactful because I'm just like, what but I do get, and I, I think it's very easy for everyone to just sit back and be like, Oh, I would have been this amazing person. I would have totally risked my life and my family's life. It's, it's difficult to look back on those. And I really, you know, you really sense and feel the bravery of those particular people. One thing I am going to say, uh, Brandon, our producer coming through here, um, bringing up a chat from the chapter of the original book, Schindler's list. It looks like, uh, uh, Mila Pfeifferberg was troubled by rumors of the type most prisoners of the Reich had by now heard that some shower nozzles gave out a killing gas. She was delighted to find merely produced icy water. So even in that moment where people from academia are being critical of him, that it seems to come from the book. So there you go. And, you know, if I had one, it's not even an issue with the movie itself or any of the things that you said, which, you know, I kind of... I can definitely see what you guys are both saying. Um, to me, just coming from the angle of, you know, is a Spielberg at his best, right? I look at what is Spielberg at his best, and we've talked about it past couple of weeks, um, and especially last week, we dove a little bit, dived a little bit more into it. Dove, dived, div, divin, I don't know. <laughs> um, but the idea of, of, of how Spielberg is so good at installing this base of like a family structure and how did, how that because the family structure is is how so much of us experience so much of the world that it, it makes these um so many things that we experience so many more so much more powerful because that's something we can all kind of relate to in that sense and you know that was essentially absent from this movie you know there were families in the movie that were made present you know kids and, and their parents and such but um you know not in the typical way that we see from a Spielberg family. And I don't necessarily know how you do it in this context. Um, so I, you know, I'm not saying, Oh, we should have done this and focused on, you know, the Pfefferberg family or, or whatever instead, you know, it's not necessarily to say that, but um, 
if there's one thing that, you know, is one of the best things that I personally think Spielberg does well, that, you know, again, totally by choice, but it, it's, it's not in this movie. So, you know, if, if there's any sort of, again, it's not really a criticism at the movie itself, but if there's a criticism or if there's a way to try and say, is a Spielberg at his best? I, that, that's the only thing I could come up with that I'm like, what? I don't, I don't know. I think that on top of that, it's, um, Kind of the analogy that I'll give is like Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is the Beatles at their best, but it's not the Beatles at their most Beatles. There's something like Rubber Soul or Revolver <clears throat> is like them at their most Beatles. And obviously people are going to have their personal preferences. Yes, very well Definitely. Said, yeah. it, it may not be Sp- – It's mm-hmm. I think it's probably Spielberg at his best, but it's definitely not Spielberg at his most Spielberg. Yeah. It's definitely not a little boy on a bicycle with E.T. in the front flying across the moon. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not Indiana Jones running away from, you know, a big rolling ball. It's not even, for me, like the opening 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. <clears throat> it, it, honestly, part of the thing that I think that it is is um, this isn't a criticism of the movie. It just is a subject matter of the movie. Spielberg, I associate so closely with, like, a kind of this a feel of Americana. Mm-hmm. This movie is completely removed from that. It doesn't take place in America. There are no American characters, and it's certainly not something that is American that you relate to at all. Yeah, it's almost. Uh, Jeff, I know in our conversations uh, at, at work, Jeff and I work together, and we have stupid debates all the time. Um, one thing I think I've introduced you to this term from uh, from legal uh, the legal world. Um, if something is sui generis, S-U-I-G-E-N-E-R-I-S, um, it basically means it's a thing that it's in its own category. It cannot be compared. And to me, Schindler's List is sui generis for Steven Spielberg. It's like, it, it's almost impossible to put up against some of his other movies just because of the nature of it. Um, and yeah, you said it way better than I could, Nate. I kept trying to come up with a, a pithy little quote when I was watching. I'm like, all right, it's... It's, best, it's Spielberg's best movie, but it's not the best Spielberg movie. But no, I think you're exactly right uh, how you said it. All right, Steve, production history of Gladiator. All right, Gladiator, as you mentioned earlier, came out in 2000. Um, if anybody doesn't know what Gladiator's about, it's about Maximus, the uh, Roman general who is betrayed and uh, basically seeks to fight his way to, um, to the emperor, who's the person who betrayed him. Um, rising up the ranks of the gladiatorial uh, combat arena, etc. Um, the guy who wrote it uh, was actually uh, inspired because on a cross-country trip through Eastern Europe, like just about every town he went to, he kept seeing all these old ancient Roman arenas. And he's like, what, you know, where did these come from? Why does every city have one of these? And so he was inspired to read more about it, and he turned into a, turned into a novel. Um, studios, they picked it up. Uh, this guy wrote the first draft of it. Once Ridley Scott became attached, he, uh, I laughed because this is one of my criticisms later on. He thought the dialogue was too on the nose, uh, and lacked subtlety. So they, it was, they hired John Logan, uh, another pretty famous, uh, writer, uh, screenplay writer to, to rewrite it. Um, and he, I think he's got top billing, uh, John Logan, who he also wrote Alien Covenant, by the way. Yeah. Um, anyway, so. Um, Mel Gibson again Tom Sizemore and Tom Cruise were all considered instead of Russell Crowe but the producers and a studio were like no Russell Crowe is the guy he's just coming off LA Confidential like you mentioned it's got to be him Um, and Russell Crowe was basically sold the movie by saying it's Ridley Scott it's Romans 
sword and sandals, are you in? And he's like, sure. And I guess it was just hell. The, the shoot in terms of the script and the dialogue and the rewrites, nobody was happy with it. They rewrote probably 75% of it after they started filming. Um, I guess a typical screenplay has somewhere between, you know, for a movie like that, 100, 120 pages, which is, I think, what Russell Crowe said uh, in the thing I read. And when they started filming, they had 21 pages. Uh, so not great. Um, but it somehow turned out to be, um, you know, an Oscar winning movie and, um, people thought it was going to do okay before it came out, but no one expected it to be the, the massive, massive hit that it was. It definitely, it was not expected to win Oscars. Um, critical reception was kind of meh. Um, we like to talk about Roger Ebert here and, uh, he, he kind of just friggin' hated it. He, he said it, it looked muddy. And he said, quote, the storyline is rocky on downers, <laughs> which I thought was fun. Um, One thing but, about I'll add, I'll just interject yeah. with Roger Ebert. He, like, famously, <laughs> there were, like, genres he didn't like. He was not a big fan of, like, the sandal and swords. He gave bad reviews to a lot, like, Troy and a lot of movies that came after that were yeah. very much in the same vein. Sorry, just I'll add that about Roger Ebert. He could get very nitpicky on certain genres. No, that's a good point, because, yeah, we, I definitely don't want people thinking we're holding them up to be, like, the end all be all so that's very very full disclosure i do hold roger ebert to the end all <laughs> he's my favorite writer of any kind at all in, in the history of writer. all writing um i love the raj i miss him every day not even kidding but i agree nate completely he has blind spots and he has some that he just did horror movies was another one he's didn't like horror movies yeah. so same deal um but yeah it cleaned up made a ton of money um second highest uh oh so i'm sorry the fourth highest grossing film of the year behind Mission Impossible 2 and Castaway. Oh, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. So kind of a weird collection. Uh, one other interesting bit um, about the production that I'm, I think a lot of people know, but the guy that played Proximo, Oliver Reed, died in the middle of it. And uh, the end of his performance, they uh, towards the end of the movie, they had to finish it with CGI. So that's kind of one of the first times that that happened. Uh, I, I thought it was actually funny. I, funny. Bad choice words. I thought it was actually interesting um, that because I did know that about Proximo, but then also the character of Marcus Aurelius, yes. the actor Richard Harris, um, who died in the movie, the character, he actually died after filming the second Harry Potter movie because right. he was Dumbledore and they had to replace him for the rest yeah, of the series. It was quite unfortunate. Um, it's actually yeah, he, a story that he wasn't, he knew that he was like he was not going to live through the whole Harry Potter series. There's something like, like his grandson or his granddaughter told him that if he didn't take the role of Dumbledore, that they would never talk to him again. Oh my God. So he, <laughs> he knew that he probably wasn't going to survive the series, but he had to take it because his grandkids wanted him to fun little fact about Richard Harris there. I think we're I, I would have caved to that as well. Right. Um, all right. One other very interesting thing I thought about the production. One man has, an Oscar, or had, he's dead now, had an Oscar for both Gladiator and Schindler's List. Bronco Lustig, the producer, he um, donated, actually, his Oscar that he got for Schindler's List to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel. So, I thought that was interesting. But that was a nice that is interesting. synergy when I was researching. I'm like, that name looked familiar. Click on it, it's like, oh, okay. So, yeah, so... There you go. Yeah. Um... 
So from my notes, some of the things that I had about Gladiator, just, you know, due to the subject matter, uh, it's not as, I didn't have as much to say about it, but there were some things. First, I thought it was, especially now that I have seen Duelists, and I had not before, the scene when Maximus is, is captured after the death of Marcus Release and he breaks free and they're in the forest and somebody comes at him with a horse, it's almost shot for shot like that scene in The Duelists. Yeah. And I thought that was so cool. And you see um, these kind of similar... That's why we're doing this whole project, right? Like you can see these these directors as they move along and their careers and things that... I mean, at that point even, you know, that was 22 years after The Duelists. And, um, you know, he's still pulling that same kind of thing in there. And I think that's really cool. Actually, kind of weird now to think that we're further removed from Gladiator than Gladiator was from the Duelist when it was oh, made. Man. That's crazy. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so some things that they're one of the faults. Full disclosure here: I used to do um, a movie. I had a blog site dedicated to movies and movie reviews and things like that um, years ago. I haven't posted in, in over ten years. Um, but I used to do it, you know, there's about a five-year period where I was posting to it, you know, almost daily. And so one of the things I had that I did was, was you know, I did a series of the five most overrated movies of all time, right? And I picked Gladiator as my number one most overrated movie of all time. Now, I just want to be clear here that I think it's important. I said this in the post when I wrote it in 2010, and it's ever, it's ever as true today. Overrated does not mean bad. So I want to make that clear. Because Gladiator is a fantastic movie. Um, but just like, especially, you know, for, for our generation, I just feel like there was this like, um, this, and, and this is actually one of the things that I wrote down, one of the issues that I had with Gladiator. There's like this intentional cool factor, you know? Like, I mean, we've got in our opener, right, for the show. Like, I'll give them something they've never seen before. You know, it's just, and... It's a quote machine. Like, right, and there's, um, you know... Especially when, even though we're not comparing the movies directly, it's hard not to compare them in some in some way, just because of the, the nature of our show. But the like, there were points where you could kind of kind of delve a little bit deeper into some of these things, right? Like, you know, oh, he was from general to slave, and then from slave to whatever, and but they never really like talk about the slave part, and there and with yeah. him, you know, he's just kind of. He's mostly just kind of walking around, like okay, he's behind bars, but it's not like like they don't really get into the just like how awful slavery is and yeah, how not interested in it beyond no. And the then slaves. and then this, you know, we talked about the brutality of the the murders and like when Eamon Gerth is 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 shooting with the sniper rifle and, and killing these people just wantonly, without regard for human life. But then we get to this, you know, this. There's these horrors of being a gladiator and fighting for your life, and the only way for you to survive is to kill somebody else who's also a slave, right? Like, that's horrible. That's horrible. And they just don't delve into that aspect at all. So much so to the point where when they stage these battles in um, these gladiatorial battles, all the people who aren't in, like, the main group of characters we know have masks covering their faces. They don't even give them a face, and then they just soon as the doors open, you know, they're just whipping them in the face with the with a flail and just blood's flying. And, you know, I, I explained it to my wife. I was just like, man, you know, the, the kind of difference between the two movies, I'm watching Schindler's List and I'm like, man, this is brutal. And then I'm watching Gladiator and I'm like, oh, that was brutal. 
You know, like it's, it's <laughs> they're both brutal, but like it's, it's in a, totally different it's ways. Yeah. And, and I, I think even now, game. more so than than also, you know, years ago, like, that kind of intentional cool factor really kind of pulls at me and it annoys me. And then one final thing too is part of what I think Ridley Scott does best, and we talked about this last week, is is questioning things, philosophical. You know, just like whether it's Blade Runner and like what does it mean to be human and, and what, you know, whether it's alien and, and where, you know, where did everything come from? What's, what's, the, what's the human, what's the purpose of human life, etc. It's there in this movie, but every time he gets close, it just goes away. You know, it's because they, they have multiple conversations. What is Rome? What is, what is Rome? You know, they have, they have, oh, for the glory of Rome. And then Marcus Aurelius is like, Maximus, you've never been to Rome. And you fought your entire life for it. And so that, but then every time, like there's one scene where it's uh, Falco and Gracchus, I think, and they're talking and it's like, what is Rome but the mob? And then it's like, well, you know, what is Rome? And it just kind of stops. And they don't really delve into this conversation. And that was, I wanted that to be there because then if, if you're not going to have, if you're not going to have this horrors of slavery, and you're not going to have the horrors of war that you really show and you're not even going to delve into that, then it's just... You know, it, it, it loses something. I think it teases, on that exact note, which I think is a great point, Jeff, it teases, but in my opinion, as I watch it now as an adult, almost a better ending at there's going to be this coup, and he's working secretly, uh, you know, with the sister and, uh, and a couple of the senators, and he's going to get outside the city walls, and he has his own army out there that when they see him alive, trust me, their loyalties are going to fall to me. They're going to come back in, and the senator says, and then that's it. I'm not going to replace you know, one dictator with another. And he says, no, you won't. I'll leave, and I will give Rome back. Like, remember, like I didn't care at all when I was a little kid. I just wanted to get back to the gladiator stuff. But watching it as an adult, it had been a while, and I'm kind of like, I know this falls apart, what happens here, and then the whole thing. It's like a big trap, and they catch him, and it's like – and that would have been pretty cool if he would have gone outside the city walls and had his own army and then marched into Rome and that was the finale. And then it's like this: he hands Rome. It's a letdown. I, it or, is, or even, or even a letdown. Or even what would have been more interesting, if you ask me, is if he goes in and it's like Gracchus is like, "Okay, we took back Rome. Now give it back to me, like you said you would." And then he's just like, "No," you know, like that could have been like really. Like corruption of men, you know. There's almost a very similar sort of through line there from both movies, but yeah, just completely. Nope. I, he, uh, you know, I was, he, when I was, you know, thinking about it afterwards, I was like, I think this is the apotheosis of 1990s Clinton America. Like this movie, if it had come out on September 12th, 20 or 2001, it would have not won. Academy Award. This was it's very clear cut. You know, we don't have to worry too much about the details of who's bad, who's good. You know, we don't have to think too much about it. It's the good guys are going to win. You know, well, yada yada. It's they had some setbacks, but it's fine. You know, it, he'll just hand back the keys and everything will be great. He'll kill the one guy and everything's wrapped up nice and neat and with a bow. Um, you know, and, and I think it's just it's not like you said. It's not interested in going any deeper on any of these crazy topics. Um, not crazy topics, you know what I mean, but uh, things that deserve to be discussed. Um, uh, do you guys think Russell Crowe deserved to win Best Actor? Because 
I'm not saying that you have to have that acting is done only through lines. Of course, that's that's ridiculous. I would never say that. Um, you know, so much of acting is emoting with your face and body language, etc. But I, for the first time ever watching this movie, I realized that there's a really long period where Russell Crowe doesn't say anything. His character does not actually utter a word. And so I paused it and I went back and I timed it. At 40 minutes and 50 seconds, he says, Praetorian, when he calls the guy for to have the duelist scene, basically. And then for 27 minutes, he does not utter a, a single legible word. The next thing he says is, are you not entertained? Like literally everything throughout that, he's just talking with his eyes or grunting. Like I'm looking at the I'm looking at the nominees for that year. You always have to kind of compare it in the context of the year. <clears throat> I will not lie; I'm not very familiar with a lot of these movies. Um, I know the, all the actors though. So he was nominated against uh, Javier Bardem, a movie called Before Night Falls. Uh, probably the probably I would imagine his biggest competition that year was Tom Hanks, Castaway. Uh, Ed Harris for Pollock, which is the movie about Jackson Pollock, and Jeffrey Rush for Quills. Um, I've never seen Before Night Falls or Quills. I can't speak to Jeffrey Rush's or Javier Bardem's performances in that. I mean, I think Tom Hanks probably in Castaway is better and has to do more, and he carries that whole film, but... I agree. I mean, it's it, Tom Hanks probably should have won, but, you know, the Russell Crowe stuff is kind of iconic still to this day, better or for worse, so... I don't know. That's not, I'll admit, that's not a year that I look at and I'm like, oh my god, there was someone who was so much clearly better. It's... I'm not super familiar with a lot of those movies, so whatever it's worth. Yeah. Our producer, Brandon, said, Hank said more range in Castaway than Crow had in any moment of Gladiator, which I agree with. And I actually, I, I've long fought this, right? So Russell Crowe was nominated three years in a row. He had, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for The Insider in 99, for Best Actor for Gladiator in 2000, and for Best Actor for A Beautiful Mind in 2001. And of those three performances, just talking about those three, by far the worst of those three for Russell Crowe is Gladiator, and it's yeah. the only one that he won for. Now, I think he was cruising well on his way to a victory for Beautiful Mind again, and then he had some, some incident with, it was like a, he threw a phone at his mom or something. It was some sort of, it came out like a month before the Oscars when voting was still open, and it just tanked his chances. Um it was similar to, like, a Christian Bale had a similar incident that kind of ruined his chances one year before he finally won. So uh, I think there was something similar. But um, I always thought that was kind of ironic that that his performance of those mm -hmm. three, um, I mean, Beautiful Mind was so good. And that was, you know, Gladiator yeah. is what he wins for. Heck, so. LA Confidential. I mean, he shows... One of my favorite movies of all yeah. time. So, all right. So um, with that, so just just to re, as a refresher, this is not comparing the movies um, directly, but comparing the movies as the best of each director. I guess before we really get into that, just a quick thing, okay? We don't necessarily have to list out all the movies, but I, I listed out a few. So if if we're talking these two um, to be the best of of the best, right? Like. Is this truly, um, like, if, if you took this movie for Spielberg and put it against 
four to six of his other movies, his other you know great movies, Saving Private Ryan, uh, The Color Purple, um, you know his other great ones, and then you took Gladiator and you put it against Ridley Scott's other great ones, Alien, um, Blade Runner, Thelma and Louise, etc. Like if you if you did that, would this movie still win for each director? And I will start. I think for Spielberg, I think it definitely. I, I don't know. I said definitely. I think it it might probably. I think the biggest competition for Spielberg is definitely Saving Private Ryan uh, to Schindler's List, which I might actually prefer to Schindler's List, but it's just it, it's that one's really close. Um, I think for Ridley Scott, it's definitely a no. I think Alien or Blade Runner would most definitely win. Um, and I think even a movie like Black Hawk Down has a chance um, to beat it. I think history has been much more kind to Ridley Scott than his contemporary audiences were uh, with his movies. So uh, I, I think Gladiator is, is, would not win against some of his older ones. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's, it's not him at his best, but just from that standpoint, I don't, I don't think so. This is really hard for me because of the the Beatles analogy that I made earlier. Um, I I agree with Ridley Scott. I think definitely no. I think that if you're you know if I, I think of this as if somebody who is completely unfamiliar with either of these filmmakers, but for some reason they know a lot about film. That's a very weird person to be talking to. But let's say that person exists, um, and they say, "Show me one movie from each of these filmmakers." I don't think that for either filmmaker I would show either of these movies. I definitely would not show Gladiator. I'd probably show Alien. I mean, I think I mean I'd have to think about it a little bit, but that's very much the definitive one of the more definitive uh, Ridley Scott movies. And again, Spielberg, this might be the best that Spielberg has ever been, but is it the most Spielberg that Spielberg has ever been? And this this is just completely subjective of like how you want to assess these things. If somebody came to me and said, show me one Steven Spielberg movie, I would probably not show them Schindler's List. It's not because it's not a phenomenal piece of filmmaking that, frankly, is one of the most important pieces of of culture and media of the last 100 years. I just don't think that it is representative of what we know about Spielberg. I think there's a number of Spielberg movies that I would show someone to give them a better idea of who Spielberg is. And I'd show them Jaws. Before I showed them Schindler's List. Certainly show them Saving Private Ryan. Um, I think I'd probably even show them someone uh, something like Jurassic Park. Just think that there are movies that really, when we think about Steven Spielberg, how we define his work, this is, in a way, it's completely different than anything he's ever done. And again, it's it might be the very best thing he's ever done, but it's not representative of his work. And I just want to be so clear, like, it is an amazing movie. It is, like I just said, probably one of the most important pieces of just culture in general in the last 100 years. It's a definitive storyteller at the absolute top of his game, but I just don't think it represents what we have come to associate with Steven Spielberg and his identity as a film director. That's what I'll say. Well, to, to quote Nate um, when he gave his best man speech at my wedding and he had to follow up <laughs> my uh, my wife's friend who gave an excellent speech as well. Well, shit. 
I have nothing nothing to add, especially about <laughs> Spielberg. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's definitely his most important movie, and like you said, it's probably his best in terms of combination of you know it being a film, but also a a, a piece of art, um, and a piece of art with a message. But yeah, it's not the quintessential Spielberg movie. Um, really, Scott, I don't even think Gladiator is his best historical historical epic. Um, I think that's probably Kingdom of Heaven, which I don't even know if we're going to cover, uh, the director's cut. So, yeah, I think Gladiator was a unique, um, is a beneficiary of a unique point in time. There hadn't been a Sword and Sandals movie for 20 years that had been, you know, a huge hit. And Russell Crowe was at his peak. The soundtrack, or the score, I think, really elevated it. And Ridley Scott's world-building ability, which we've talked about, I think is what you know, stirred the drink there to make it the, the flash in the pan, lightning in a bottle, whatever cliche you want that managed to, to win. So good for him. I'm glad, well, I guess he didn't even get the Oscar. Uh, so that stinks, but <laughs> uh, he could say, you know, the movie he directed got it. Um, yeah. So I definitely agree with you guys. So, yeah, I think we've probably already answered it, but in terms of, you know, going head to head, as is the, the part of the show, I, I think, even though I, I think we're all in agreement that neither, not necessarily that it's not the best, but neither is the most Spielberg or the most Scott movie of their of their pantheon of films. Um, I do think that Schindler's List is closer to a Spielberg movie than Gladiator is to a Scott movie. And I think it's because of what I talked about with, you know, what is Rome, this philosophical approach. I, I think that Scott delving into that is more Ridley Scott, and he just he came right up to it and just pulled away. And and then I also think, Nate, something that you brought up that I hadn't really ever thought about, you brought up in the first episode um, about Ridley Scott's patience with the duelists, and that's something we saw again in Alien, completely gone in this movie. Zero, zero chill yep. in Gladiator. <laughs> and and so just so many things that make Ridley Scott great. Um, I should have said my Like, it, it just weren't there. Like, he, he, he should have, I think he should have won the Best Director Oscar for this simply because if he was ever going to win in a year, it was this, and he should have won because, goddamn, the dude is a legend. But I, I just, I, I I have to give the nod to Spielberg on this one in terms of it being, Schindler's List being more of a Spielberg movie than, than Gladiator was a Ridley Scott movie. Yep, agreed. What is it? What's the tally now, Brandon? Are you keeping track? That's two to one. Well, see, we only got three episodes right now, so it's two to one in favor of Spielberg. Yeah, I was I actually going to come into the... the entire time. Yeah, I. It was funny because when I sat down to watch these movies, I actually had in my head like, "This is going to be my hot take." Season one, I'm going to pick <laughs> Gladiator over Schindler, and then you watch Schindler's List, and you're like, "God, there's no way." This movie is just a it is just a stone cold masterpiece yep. at every level, and I I happened to watch Schindler's List first, and by the time I got to Gladiator, I was like, I mean, it's enjoyable, but I was like, there's just right. there's no you can't. yeah yeah. I mean, like I literally I'm the... I'm watching Schindler's List alone. I literally cried, you know, on my couch and just you know at the scene. We see it again that the 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 favorite answer of the you know what's the best guy cry movie, you know. <laughs> And it's always, you know, one of the most popular I've seen, and one that I typically will hand out is is Steven Sp- is a uh, Steven Sp- is is Saving Private Ryan, oh. and um, because at the end, 
you know, at the very end when the older version of Matt Damon is just like, tell me I've earned it, you know? And it's like, it gets me emotional right now just thinking about it, right? But it was the same thing. It was almost the same, it's almost that same kind of, that kind of ending, you know, like I could have done more, you know, I could have, and like, I know, I know that feeling. Everyone knows that feeling, right? Where like, it's done, it's dusted, it's over with, but you could have done more. And, you know, whether it's, something as simple as studying for a test or whether it's, you know, something as, as gigantic as what he did, you know, you're, you, you've always had on some level that feeling of just like, I could have done more. I should have done more. Why didn't I do more? And you're mad at yourself, but it sucks. You get that feeling in your stomach because there's nothing you can do. It's, it's over with now. There's no more. You can't go back and do more. And so that, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, but anyway, so that that's going to wrap up the show for this week. Very uh, very uplifting show. I'm sure everyone had fun listening to the the very 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 you know light and airy topics of, of the Holocaust here. Can so I, uh, before you do that, to try to you know bring the mood up a little bit, mm-hmm. I made a note. Spielberg, I think he was still going for some Spielbergian humor in Schindler's List at a couple points. Um, one of the scenes where. The, uh, the workers are getting checked by the Gestapo guys and they have to have the, the cards, you know, to show that they're essential workers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the one guy, um, Ben Kingsley's character is with him. And the one guy's like, I'm a violinist and a pianist. And Ben Kingsley just looks at him like, are you, are you kidding me? And he's like, he's also very good with machinery or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh There's God. also the, uh, the part where he's um, trying to hire a secretary. Yes. Oh, yeah. He has, has all these... Clearly beautiful women, like the kind of woman that he wants to be a secretary, and they're just like finger pecking at this thing, like maybe doing like ten words a minute. And uh, there's this uh, woman who comes in who maybe isn't just traditionally frumpy. attractive, she's a frumpy and she just like, and she's just like typing away, exploding like, on like the that. keyboard. Yeah, you definitely could only get away both of those moments early in the movie because yeah, once no they get to the parts like there, there's no going back to those kinds of moments. <laughs> yeah, he, he, absolutely. He definitely definitely pulls the trigger on both of those things early in the movie. Yep. Yeah. And since the, you know, that brings up our mood a little bit, but in order to, to hopefully bring up the mood next week, we're going to, we're going to talk about, we're going from the best of the best and next week we'll be heading to the worst of the best or worse. I don't want to call it worse of the worst because these directors are the best, but everybody is human. Everybody's fallible and everybody can make a bad movie. And Steven Spielberg directed a movie called 1941 and Ridley Scott directed a movie called legend, both of which, and this are our, our very scientific method is, uh, is rotten tomatoes, right? The rotten tomato score is the lowest. Is that yeah, that's said? right. Yeah. That's what we took for it. So those are the two movies for each director that are the lowest, um, score. So we're going to take kind of a similar approach, not necessarily maybe contrast the, the direct, the movies directly because there's not necessarily a lot of themes that they share, but just, you know, which one failed by getting too far away from who they were as a director. So, uh, but that'll be, should be a much more, uh, much more funny, or at least, you know, not quite as heavy of an episode next week. So um, once again, thank you all so much for listening. Um, if you, if you haven't listened to the episodes um, before this one, obviously go, go back and listen to those. And uh, if you want to give us your thoughts, give us a uh, Steve, Steve hit with the hit us with the socials again. Yeah, duelofthegreats at gmail.com. And then all the socials except for TikTok, we are at duelofthegreats. TikTok, I'm going to say this every week until it's no longer true. 
uh, if it's still around, you can hit us at at dual podcast. All right. So uh, next week, join us again. Worst of the worst. We'll see you then. Until then, thanks for stopping by. We appreciate it.